Welcome to Big Time Adulting, the podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Murray, and I'm here to take it deep with you on adulthood, womanhood, motherhood, and whatever other things end in hood that we can think of. It's going to be real, it's going to be honest, and we are going to laugh until a little pee comes out. If you've been looking to find a podcast to relate to as a woman and a mom, and you're kind of awesome, which you definitely are, subscribe now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Big Time Tilting Podcast. Yes! Um, very interesting topic here this week. Um, you know, Kelly Graydon is my friend here from an Instagram page called Advice I Give My Friends. I'm on the edge of my seat, Kelly. Um, Kelly is a graduate of Harvard College and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. She is a pediatrician and a mother of two from New York City. Her career has focused on children with chronic medical conditions and school health. As an advocate for children, she wrote a book called Parenting in a Pandemic, which provided calm, realistic, and evidence-based advice to families during this stressful time. Kelly has been um, a great resource on Instagram that I've followed closely for a a while now. And um, I've talked on my Instagram page um, more than once about COVID-related things and um, masking of children, and here we are now at this juncture of the recent, somewhat recent approval of the vaccine for children ages 5 to 11, and um, as a curious parent, I had a lot of questions, and I I did a poll on my Instagram page asking other parents, and um, over 80% of the people who answered the poll were also curious about a podcast with a pediatrician. Um, and I will, I would like to say a, a very well re- renowned and well-versed pediatrician in the topic of COVID. So before um, I get going with the first ke- question for Kelly, Kelly, would you just like to say hello? Hi, I'm happy to be here. And I think, you know, it's an important topic, so I'll do my best to address it in a, in a balanced way. Thank you. Yes. And I did. I'll, I'll, I'll disclaim this to everybody that I sent an email to Kelly before um, this interview took place to let her know that I was going to press her on some topics with this because I do have questions. But just to be clear, I am a very pro-vax person. My husband and I are both vaccinated. We've scheduled boosters. And my oldest child, who everyone probably knows, has just um who finished chemo last year has also just finished, which they probably don't know, a very aggressive and accelerated revaccination um, schedule of all of his inoculations that he once already received as a baby and a toddler. Um, due to this is like they revaccinate kids who have undergone long regimens of chemotherapy due to the fact that the original protection was likely wiped out from all of the chemo that he received since we don't have, you know, a targeted therapy available at this point for pediatric leukemia. But that being said, I have not yet vaccinated my six and eight year olds. And, um, you know, I want to be clear in saying that I believe that the vaccine is probably safe for uh, most kids, though I know there wasn't a huge trial. um, And I do also have a, a couple of questions regarding, you know, this condition, myocarditis, which is being sort of popping up a little bit in um, teenage boys um, or boys is age like 13 to 20 or something like that around those ages. And, um, you know, I have my kids scheduled for their flu vaccines on Thursday. um, But, uh, you know, 
I, I feel like that is actually even a little bit more important to their individual health um, than the COVID vaccine in, in a lot of ways, simply due to the high likelihood that they're, you know, potentially could be asymptomatic with COVID, which I think is something that I originally read on your page. Can you, is that still, um, like, I think you had said that 80% of kids are asymptomatic with COVID. Is that still true given all the variants in, in recent months? You know, it's actually harder than you would think to know how many kids are asymptomatic because it requires that you have like pretty robust testing going on to catch it. And, and that you also start to encounter the limits of the tests in terms of tests aren't perfect and they, they identify false positives that, you know, aren't true disease. So it's somewhere between 50 and 80% of children that are asymptomatic, uh, even with the Delta variant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's, it's pretty good. So I guess my questions for you today, as it pertains to the vaccine for kids, is I feel that there's kind of a problem with the rhetoric, the rhetoric and the pressure and the politicization of all of this, which is, I think, created a lot of mistrust. And I think that there are parents who feel polarized um, in regards to vaccinations. And, um, you know, from what I hear, they they don't even really trust their pediatricians anymore, which I find to be really, really sad. So I want to ask you what you might say to these parents, like at this point right now, as this vaccine has been approved. Oh, it's a good question. You know, I would say that many pediatricians have been frustrated with the way the pandemic has played out with regards to children's health as well. A lot of our decisions have centered around protecting people 50 and up, um, you know, and sometimes we have had to be uh, very conservative about what children have been allowed to do during the pandemic, not because of the direct risk of the virus to kids, but because of the public health implications of kids getting the vaccine and passing it to their parents and their grandparents and their teachers. And so in, so in a lot of ways, I empathize with the idea that it, it's been unfair what the children have gone through, you know, missing so much school, missing my, I have a, a almost four-year-old and an eight-year-old and, you know, two years of very limited contact with their families and you no know, birthday parties and, you know, canceled trips to Disney World and all these kinds of things. Like it's, it's terrible, but I would say with regards to the vaccine, we shouldn't necessarily let the media narrative and the political nature of the debate like influence our decision making overly so, because there has been an approach to developing a children's vaccine that has been very thoughtful, very, very, very safety conscious, and very methodical, you know? So you referenced before the size of the trial. You know, the size of the trial um, is the same or bigger than the trial that happened for the HPV vaccine or for the meningitis vaccine. You know, the safety steps that the vaccine has gone through um, have been the same as every other vaccine, you know, in terms of its development. Um, the only difference being that we observed for side effects for three and a half months instead of six months, which would be required for a full FDA approval. That's like the only difference between the emergency use application and the full approval application. So, so, and then, then it, it comes back to like, sorry, for, for a low risk population like children, why shorten an observation period? What 
sense does that make waiting an extra three months to make sure that seems weird to me? Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I think you have to keep in context that um, when we're dealing with something like hepatitis A, for example, that vaccine is like maybe 15 years old. And, you know, before the vaccine, there were like 500 to a thousand cases a year. That's just a, an estimate that I'm, I'm pulling out of the back of my brain. So there was no rush to, to vaccinate, you know, the hundred million children against it when it's a rare thing that's happening. But now with COVID, we're having, you know, millions of children being infected now. Um, and so there is the, there is a lot more pressure uh, in terms of like, you know, if you wait six months uh, to get the vaccine, you will miss like three potential months of benefit. And just knowing how vaccines work in terms of the likelihood of side effects, sometimes we see side effects two weeks after, maybe three weeks after. It's almost unheard of to go more than two months after. I, I can't think of a single vaccine that has had side effects come up between two and six months. Right. So you're saying that three months is probably a safe amount of time and that six months might be you know, very conservative in terms of the wait period. Yeah. So you have to balance like, what's the chance we're going to learn something new uh, if we wait longer with what's the chance that, that children will be infected with the virus, which is pretty, it's pretty clear that the vaccine is less risky than getting COVID. Even if COVID is low risk for kids, it's not like no risk. So we're talking about like one out of 200 children um, needing hospitalization, you know, um, the rate of myocarditis from getting COVID is probably around like 300 per 100,000, whereas the risk of myocarditis, even in the highest risk age group, is like 60 per million um, associated with the vaccine. So it just, it does Right, you're clear. saying that your risk of my your point being is that the risk of myocarditis for this, age, this high risk age group actually goes down if they're vaccinated and they get COVID. Mm-hmm. Rather than if they could be, because you're saying it's a risk for these boys if they get COVID also, which is higher than the risk of getting it from the vaccine. Is that correct? Yes. Well, as as I think about like the decision to vaccinate my own kids, you know, I don't really think of like the decision to keep them on lockdown and hide in a cave as like a valid option. So I'm saying I compare like my risk of like them having a life and going to school and having some exposure risk and potentially getting COVID with the risk of getting the vaccine. So those are the things that I compare. Now, some families might say like, look, I'd rather homeschool my kids and have zero exposure risk. And that's, that is like a different, different question. And then, and then some families would say that I'd rather not risk a vaccine that I'd, it doesn't feel like they know much about. And, and in fairness, that there's been a lot of, I think, flip-flopped information out of the government in terms of the way they've handled the pandemic. Like I'd say for me, a lot of what's happened in the way that the pandemic has been handled in relation to children has been a giant fuck up. 
I agree. The closing of schools could not have been a worse decision. And and some of that stuff, I have to say, I completely understand out of the gates why these extreme measures were taken. And I was honestly first in line to be like on social media, everybody stay home. This is what we need to do right now. But, you know, as time went on and we and we learned more, um, and particularly as we learned more in, in terms of the way that the virus was affecting children and what we continued to sort of do to them over the last year. And, and I want to ask you about masking and stuff too. I think that's where mistrust starts to build. And then it has to do more with like the politics than the actual safety of the vaccine. And that's where I think people question, you know, not you know, I, I think that there there are motives in question. I think there's mistrust. I, I and and certainly for people who are more skeptical than I am, and there's a large population of those people. Yes, for sure. You know, I think it's natural to have questions, um, and it's important that people ask their questions and get answers that they're satisfied with before they make decisions for their children's health. You know, I think part of the reason that I signed up to do this with you is I think that having questions is normal. Um, asking hard questions should be welcomed and and you should have an open dialogue and you should have, have some choice about the decisions you make for your child. That's nice. And so what about, um, I just out of curiosity, where, where do you land on like natural immunity? Say you have a child who just had COVID, um, you know, in September and now the vaccine is available. What would you say about vaccinating a child or just, I feel like in general, there is natural immunity is not, not being recognized as heavily as a form of protection against COVID um, within the medical community. And that feels a little funny to me, just since, of course, you can also get COVID from being vaccinated. So I will say that I think there's a good reason why natural immunity is not being relied on. And it's, it's just because we can predict uh, the immunity that you gain from the vaccine you know, they, there are big cohorts of people um, and they look very closely at breakthrough infections and antibody titers. And we have data and science to guide us to say like, oh, your vaccine was six months ago. Your protection is probably about this level. With regards to natural immunity, it, it absolutely counts. You do gain antibodies um, and, you know, both uh, antibodies and other kinds of immunity that protect you against being reinfected. The problem is that it's extremely variable depending on your age and your immune response and and the amount of virus that you had in your system. You know, some people with more mild infections will have a milder immune reaction and and less immunity. So there have been studies looking at natural immunity that have found like between three months and five years of protection. The five years is obviously an estimate based on like Mm -hmm. statistical modeling. But that's like a really broad range. And when when we've looked at, at studies in the U.S. about people who have had prior infection first having one dose or no doses or two doses of vaccine, you know, we see that the people who have been vaccinated have like two to three times lower risk of getting COVID again. Getting COVID again is, is pretty common um, when you've been infected before. And getting COVID after vaccination is, like you said, it is possible. Oh, I know a lot of people who have gotten it since being vaccinated. And I mean, I think that they're happy that they were vaccinated because they had pretty really mild cases, but um, I'm not a doctor. So, and I haven't done enough research on the way 
you know, COVID affects you or the rate at which you get it being vaccinated versus natural immunity. But I just feel as though the fact that it's just not even being recognized as a form of protection in some ways like where say you're a nurse or something like that and you had COVID and a month ago, whatever it was, maybe it was six months ago, who knows. But then, you know, all of a sudden there's a, a mandate that you're that you must be vaccinated to work in the hospital where you're employed and that your potentially natural antibodies are not at all recognized, which I just feel like feels like it doesn't really make sense to make it mandated for a person like that. Yeah. Although I would say like, what is that, that hypothetical nurse, what is she going to do in terms of monitoring uh, her antibodies from the natural, from the infection? You know, is she going to do weekly or monthly antibody levels? Like how, how are we going to know that we can count on her protection in the same way that we can somebody who was given the vaccine on this day and this day, you know, it's, it's harder from a system perspective to evaluate uh, the risk. But is it any is it any harder to test for antibodies than it is for COVID per se? Isn't it just a it's a blood test, right? Yeah, it's a blood test. I mean, there would be a cost associated with doing the test, but other than that, it could be done. I think the other challenge is that even once you have your antibody level number, mm-hmm. like we don't necessarily that is a quantitative reflection of the number of antibodies. Uh, that does not always give you the qualitative um, data you want, which is like, am I going to get sick or not? And am I going to be a high risk or low risk to spread it? Mm-hmm. So so that's part of the reason we haven't been relying on antibody assessment as a decision tool, like whether or not you need a booster, whether or not your natural immunity counts, because we don't have a good proxy. And I assume the data is being collected and eventually maybe we will have a proxy for like, you know, at this antibody level, your risk is this amount. I I think it gets challenging because as the variants shift, you know, you see that with different variants, even the vaccine protection is variable. With Delta, the vaccine protection was a little bit lower than with the original strain. And who knows with with Omicron or whatever the next strain is, the next next variant is going to be how well um, the vaccines will cover. And we have that same issue with natural protection, right? So if you had if you had Delta and you're exposed to Delta again, your protection is probably a little bit better than if you had had a different variant and you're exposed to a new one. And so there's just a lot of variables when you're trying to determine how good your protection is. I think actually what you're saying in in terms of like these variables and like some known quantities and unknown quantities and and maybe knowing later down the line what level of, you know, viral load you were carrying as that relates to how long your antibodies last, et cetera. Basically, I think the bottom line on a lot of that stuff is that there's a lot of unknown and that in some ways, like these definitive measures feel aggressive or, um, you know, maybe the wrong approach in, in, in some people's minds, given that there is still unknown and, you know, how, who is to say at this point, what is the very best way to do this? Now, for me, I wanted to become vaccinated because number one, I wanted to help be part of the solution of, you know, coming to end the pandemic, not, not where I'm a person who I feel is a particularly high risk or something like that to get COVID or that I should have been very fearful if I had had COVID. I'd rather not have it, but 
I, I figure I'd probably be okay if I did get it. But I think like some of the other stuff that has bothered me a lot is just in terms of looking at with the kids in the in the masking and how we have, you know, we do have evidence from other countries like say the UK who have never masked their kids under age 12 and in many other countries in Europe and certainly not doing that for kids under age 6 whereas here my 2-year-old has to wear a mask to to his little school. My little Lukey in New York is wearing a mask to school, but like little Lukey in London isn't, and little Lukey in Texas isn't. I just do want to interrupt with one thing, though, which is that in the UK, they also had all the kids testing for COVID twice a week. And on average, kids in the UK last school year missed 100 days of school Mm. due to exposures and... um, and test resulting quarantines. So it's not as if the kids in the UK didn't pay a cost for their strategy too. How about Sweden though? So or Denmark. Sweden's strategy and Texas's strategy, as far as I can tell, is like, let's not look, you know, let's let's not pay as much attention. And that is a strategy that has not been embraced in, in New York, for example, right? Like people still are case tracking here. And I think what this gets at is also the what are the off ramps right because we don't want the children to have to mask forever there is a cost to masking masking is annoying it decreases your speech it muffles your voice it you can't see people's facial expressions there is definitely a cost to masking well thank you for saying that because i also feel like there's a whole population of the scientific community who will just say no there's no there's no detriment to masking children. Like we have found no difference. And I just feel like that's total horseshit. Like I can't get behind that because I've seen it with my own kids and the way that it affects them. So. Yes. I've had some teachers tell me that kids are better behaved when they're masked because they're not talking. As much. It makes you so sad. <laughs> so sad. It's like that is not the goal of masking, but there, you know, there are benefits to masking. And I think, um, with regards to kids, while we were waiting for the higher risk people in our community to have access to a vaccine, while we were waiting waiting for the more risk intolerant people in our community to have access to a vaccine, masking in communal settings decreased the spread and made uh, places like schools safer spaces for and more inclusive spaces for all. But could I just could I ask you a question about those studies because from what I've seen like and on the CDC website I mean I think there's been one actual real comprehensive study performed on masking in Bangladesh and that study seemed to not have found a high statistical significance of especially cloth masking and the CDC website will disclaim that there is not good evidence surrounding the use of cloth cloth masks which we see I mean, I don't know what it's like at your kid's school, but 90% of the kids who I see at these schools are wearing cloth masks. And I just am like, and maybe I'm not saying they never work, but I think that in more instances than not, they're not being used correctly and the right type of mask for long enough in the right setting for children to make the difference. What do you think? I think it's pretty clear. I, I, I agree there's a dearth of, of high quality studies about this, but I think it's pretty clear that masking is a risk reduction strategy. 
um, masking does not eliminate the risk, but I think that it substantially reduces the risk of transmission. I think that's pretty clear. I think masks were probably like. See, I just, I, I'm just gonna, I just disagree with you on that one. I would say that it is not statistically significant enough to compensate for the detriments to our kids at this point, where we have a widely available, effective vaccine for anyone who is at risk, and it pisses me off that they're still in a mask at school with that. And teachers do not have to vaccinate; they are not mandated to vaccinate, which is kind of crazy to me at this point where healthcare workers are and you know we're, we're protecting them because they don't want to vaccinate you know i i think that uh, i share your concern again about like the lack of an off-ramp so i think it would be wonderful if that we could all just like throw out some numbers and say like when your community is less than five percent positive for covid and your population is 70 percent or more vaccinated master optional or whatever it is to just like pick some numbers that would make a lot of sense because it's very different your local community so if you're in a place where the vaccination rates are low or where the disease rates are high like in some parts parts of the midwest recently have been really high like masking in communal situations makes more sense but here in new york where we have like a 98 percent adult vaccination rate in my neighborhood and and like the uptake of kids vaccines are quite good like I, you know and our rates of covid are like two to three percent like the benefit of the masking is much more in question when you have like strong levels of community protection but then it becomes like a that's why i think the politicization of it just comes like full force like you cannot ignore that and just say that like obviously these places with these high vax uptakes for like where we are in new york are also still continuing to use the most stringent of protocols with masking and distancing and etc whereas places who have the lowest uptake of vaccines are not using any of these measures and I think that that becomes incredibly frustrating as a parent with a child in school. And then it it's like, make it make sense on a national level. And then maybe we could get on board with everything. But I think that because those things have not happened, the mistrust remains. And then it's like, well, why will I vaccinate my five-year-old when they're still wearing a mask at school and we still have this we have this high, what is the benefit? Where is the off-ramp, like you're saying, which I think is probably where the problem is. Like, what's your end game? Yes. I, I think that children and parents, like we deserve, we deserve to have some answers and we deserve to have a sense of a plan and a sense, like a commitment to keeping uh, things open for children. You know, I feel like I feel like people, of course, they don't trust, they don't trust um, what's happened because it hasn't always been like very sensible. But and some things that were done like to increase trust, like staggering out the vaccine testing, you know, they could have filled the trials of kids um, vaccines sooner. They could have done them sooner. But the way that they did them, like going by slightly younger ages, you know, they did that to try to increase public trust and it delayed vaccine access for kids by like a year. And so it sends a mixed message to par to parents of like, it's important that you're vaccinated right away, but it's not so important that we're going to do the studies right away. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I agree that there's there have been mixed messaging, but I also think that it's important that people realize that there is both individual 
and public health benefit to children being vaccinated, you know, that if you're aiming for an off-ramp and an end, like when your kids are fully vaccinated, it's much more responsible to not have to get them tested as soon as they have a sniffle, you know, and to like, yes, overnight, it's not going to be like two weeks after my son's second dose, he doesn't have to wear a mask anymore. And we never have to test him again. Like, it's not going to be that simple. And it's not gonna be that clear. But getting him vaccinated is like a huge step towards moving on. Um, and not having to worry if he has playdates inside and not having to worry if, if he has a sniffle that he's put somebody's grandparent at risk and when you but when I I get upset sometimes when people say that when a kid has a sniffle that they're putting someone's grandparent at risk when the grandparent can have been double vaccinated with a booster at this point like what the hell like why is that grandparent now at risk if vaccines are effective like I feel like that rhetoric has to stop now that we have the vaccine. Like, yes, 100% before the vaccine was available, but like, knock it off. They can be vaccinated. They can get a booster. I'm not saying you knock it off, but like, that's, I'm saying that to like this rhetoric that we that we keep hearing. And I feel like that, again, like mistrust, like, why are you saying that? Because you, meaning the general medical community saying that when the grandparents are now protected in terms of everything we could possibly do for them in a pandemic situation. Yes. Uh, you know, I think as a parent of two little kids, I've become habituated to the the fear of like being the one that closes the classroom down because <laughs> like we all just want school to stay open and everybody to be in school and happy and learning and growing and developing. And uh, I'm sure other parents feel my fear of like, I don't want to be yeah. the one screwed up for everybody. Um, and you're right that people, adults need to take responsibility for their own well-being. And, you know, by and large in my community, they have, which I'm so thankful for. In other communities, you know, like my uncle is in rural Virginia and and he did not get vaccinated. He did not. And I didn't know he didn't get vaccinated until he got COVID. And by then, you know, it was, it was kind of too late for me to convince him. But, you know, when I asked him, like, why didn't you get vaccinated? You know, was he okay? No, <laughs> no, he was in the hospital um, for almost a month and it was discharged on long-term oxygen. So it's like, he's in his late sixties. Like he's the kind of guy that should have been vaccinated. Right. And, and when I talked to him about why he didn't, you know, there's this concept in medicine of like, you know, we have science, we have answers, we have a new vaccine and we roll it out. And like some people are just like on the ball and well-informed and, and jump and do things. And other people like, it takes time for information to trickle down through communities and for like people who maybe have less access to, to good quality information or fewer resources. Like there's an equity reason in some sense that things take longer to roll out. Like it. Yeah. And there's also a history in this country of using experimental vaccines on, you know, the black and Brown communities. Um, so I feel like that creates another level of mistrust amongst those communities who we've seen a lower incidence of vaccine uptake with, which you can understand why that might be. Absolutely. And so in terms of like, it, we're, we are all connected in this way, right? So, so me expecting all vulnerable adults to make the right choice within three months of the vaccine being available. The vaccine's been available for longer than that, but just, you know, like I do have to give give people a minute to make their decision and to feel comfortable and to 
you know, the rates of vaccination in some of some of like the outer boroughs of New York are like half what they are in yeah. my neighborhood. So if my kids are are spreading COVID in school, you know, like it, we are all connected. So maybe maybe it's not the kid's grandparent, maybe it's their babysitter, maybe it's somebody they're on the subway next to. Like I, I still feel like I have to have some empathy for those who've chosen not to be vaccinated. My husband would say like, no, <laughs> like our kids matter more than people who have been hesitant. But but I do think that when you see how hard um, some of these communities have been hit, you know, I just, I just feel that like I still have to behave. I still have to take precautions for my family so that I don't make things worse for others. Yeah, I think that's kind of you. And I think that there is definitely a giant um, population of people and probably doctors and nurses and people who have seen a lot of bad things happen with COVID um, firsthand, that there is a lot of fear around COVID in general for for everybody because it was, you know, an emergency situation for for a while, a period of time. Um, I'm of the the mindset now with like the reading that I'm doing and the way that I I'm choosing to look at this and feel like I want to go forward with life that as a vaccinated adult um, and with people who are at, at risk in our, in our country who all can be vaccinated if they would like to be that, you know, we should be able to move forward. Um, but back to like bringing it back to the kids. And I think we are maybe slowly but surely moving forward. I mean, like I literally want to burn every newspaper right now with the Omicron variant coming up. I'm like, it's a variant. It's always going to be, we're always going to have a variant. No, there's going to be another variant in five more months, whatever. It's never ending. Right. But um, mm -hmm. this is an endemic at this point. It's going to, it's a pandemic for maybe the unvaccinated at risk populations. And, um, you know, I would like to say that like my, my kid's pediatrician and my son's oncologist who I both, I trust both like with everything I have would advocate for children to become vaccinated. And like you were saying, like that vaccines are safe for these kids. So that if you believe that the vaccine is safe for them, then why not? Right. So like in my mind, it's kind of a 0% chance risk of the vaccine and a 0% chance risk of what happens to them from COVID. Um, and maybe there are slight differences and nuances in those numbers, but if, if vaccinating them, you know, gets us a little closer to overall ending the craziness with COVID, um, I'm not opposed to that. So I just feel like you know, I know I came, I came at you hard with some of this stuff today. And um, I, I still am very upset in, in some ways about the way the pandemic has been handled with the kids clearly. Um, but, you know, I, I did, I really do appreciate what you have to say and that you're open to the questions and open to the hard questions. Yeah. You know, I, I think that it's, it's important to ask the questions and get them out and then to circle back to like your family and what matters most to you. And, and while COVID is like low risk for kids, I, I do think it, if you're getting the flu vaccine, your child's risk from flu versus your child's risk from COVID are not so, so dissimilar. No. However, I don't know of very many asymptomatic flu cases. Nobody's ever swabbed a hundred kids for flu every day for all winter. Nobody's yeah. gone looking for them. You I know, suppose. there's certainly yeah. cases of flu, I think, that pass through asymptomatically. But just to say, I think like, I think that, um, I think the vaccines are safe. And I do think 
though rare, there is some risk from COVID directly for the kids. And what I think swayed my decision, my husband's decision to proceed with vaccination was really this idea of like empowerment and hope. And like, my son is doing his part to like be part of the solution and move on and move forward and reduce like, you know, reduced hesitancy to, to go back to living a normal life. And so he feels good about that. It's been sweet to see as I've vaccinated some of the kids in the community, like to see that they feel like they're doing their part, you know, and that they're ready to move on. And I know we're just all ready to move on one way or the other. Yeah, I'm over it. (laughs) But you know, there's only so much over it you can be when, you know, there's a case of COVID in your child's class and everyone's sent home. I mean, we have, actually the school has imposed rules, I feel like that kind of prevent, um, you know, a group quarantine situation from happening, thank goodness, with like three feet apart. But in my mind, I'm like, uh, to hell with all of these rules for the kids and let's just let them be be kids and live their lives. Um, But again, I think that there is, you know, a lot of questions from parents in terms of the way that that this has been handled and then their mistrust and then their decision to vaccinate or not vaccinate their kids. And then there are a lot of parents who run to the front of the line and can't wait, like you're saying, you know, just let their kids be part of the solution. Let's go, let's do this. And then parents who will never do it. But And I think for the parents in the middle, you know, like, if you didn't do it yet, but you might do it someday, like you can also just keep your eyes open. And we've had probably like 4 million kids uh, in the five to 11 year old cohort who have gotten a dose, some of whom are getting their second doses and we'll have more data and more information. And maybe that will make you feel more comfortable um, as time goes on that like, okay, the trial had, you know, less than 4,000 kids in it. And now we have 4 million. Right. Totally. Like, that'll increase your confidence. And and just because you didn't do it, you weren't the first, it doesn't mean that there's not still benefit. Like you said, COVID is going to be part of our lives. Getting a COVID vaccine is going to, is going to offer protection whenever you do it. It's just a matter of like thinking about the very real risk of um, getting COVID like this winter. And, And like, you know, it's kind of coming for us as we're all indoors and there's like variants with potential for more spread. I don't think just to say about Omicron, I don't think we have any evidence that it's like more vaccine evasive or more severe at this point. Yeah. But what does seem pretty clear is that it might be even more infectious than Delta and that it might lead to more rapid spread. And in, and in some ways for the low risk people, you know, more people getting, getting COVID is going to be, you know, make this thing get over sooner. But in terms of like your child's risk of getting COVID, like in the next three to six months, if they're unvaccinated and doing stuff, like it's pretty high, <laughs> you know, so so just be aware that like you're deciding, like you're not deciding like not to get COVID. That's not really a choice right now. So no, yeah, it's going to, everyone's going to get COVID. That's, that's the real, the reality of this virus. And, um, but I just, I, I think sometimes that's part of my frustration with it too, because from the media, the headlines, the medical community, it's like all of this efforts to almost seems like it's to stop COVID. And that seems very silly. Yes. Well, anyway, um, I guess we can both agree that there is a lot of conflicting information, not conflicting information per se, but conflicting um, opinions on how to handle and what to do and ways it's been handled in different places and, and the politicization of it, which I think is undeniable at this point, if you look at the way 
different states in, in this country are operating. The only last question I, I do want to ask you is about, um, you know, what you feel about a vaccine mandate for kids. If that's coming, do you think that that's something that's coming or do you think that that is something that, that a measure that they'll not go for? It's very interesting. And in the FDA talks about whether or not the 5 to 11 year old vaccine should be approved, this came up and like of the people on the panel, like five or six of them chimed up that they don't think that mandates make sense for the five to 11 year old group, particularly when it's under emergency use authorization. And then like two hours later, I got an email from my kid's school being like, oh, you're not, we're not going to mandate it, but we're going to require you to get tested weekly if you don't get it or, or something along those lines. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to be a political community decision, the decision to mandate at this point. It's not going to be one. I don't think for under 12, the, the scientific community is going to be the one like leading the charge on that. If, if communities are thinking about mandates for that age group, I think it's going to be for sort of um, political and public health messaging reasons. So, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's clear at this point that that a mandate is in the best interest of the five to eleven year old children. I think, with regards to kids in age groups where you have the the vaccines fully authorized, the mandates in schools start to make more sense to me in terms of when you're ready to peel back the precautions, like COVID's never going away. When are we gonna start ignoring the cases that come up? When are we gonna stop making kids stay three feet apart and stop masking and all these things? When you know that your community achieves a high level of immunity um, through vaccination or otherwise, it can give you a lot more confidence as you approach those decisions. Yeah, I would argue that those numbers should be um, just for adult population as well, though, like without children's vaccination level being above a certain rate, I would think that the adult vaccine uptake percentage should be enough to make those rollbacks. It's very complicated. You know, it's just, it's very hard thing because especially when you're thinking about public school communities and you're thinking about just the variety of people and the variety of families who are participating and what their beliefs and preferences are. You know, I just, I don't envy the people making these decisions because it's like, where are we going to center our thought process around like average risk kids, average risk adults, or are we going to like center our thinking about like the most vulnerable in the community? You know, the kid who has a parent, on chemo at home or or the the kid who ha, who is attending school while getting chemo like like how are we going to judge like what makes a safe and inclusive environment for all and like at what point do you just protect the people who are higher risk for you know versus imposing upon the people who are lower risk it's it's just it's very difficult question i i think all that to say that my opinion is that it's very difficult to, <laughs> to say with certainty. It depends on the population. It depends on the age. It depends on the community. You have to be respectful, I think, to all as you approach it. Thank you for saying that. I think that's an important thing to remember, just respecting other people and also the, the differing levels of opinions and comfort level and fears on all of this, because it has been 
you know, still somewhat of a recent phenomenon in our, in our world. Um, and that people feel a lot of different ways. So I just, I'm glad we had this conversation because I think there is a lot of central ground that has been skipped over and that there's a lot more room for discussion than sometimes allowed. It feels like, um, right now. So I'm happy to have had a, a good chat with you. And I feel like the, um, you know, I think what, what people should be doing is talking to their doctors and having these real and open conversations with their doctors in terms of risk level and getting real numbers and stuff like that for kids and, and vaccines and whatever it is, um, if, if you feel like that's a decision that you're hard pressed to make at this point, right? So I know I'm, I have another conversation to have with my son's oncologist um, this month. We'll, we'll be talking about it again, but thank you. And um, before we go, I want to let everyone know where they can find you, which is your, um, go ahead, Kelly, I'm going to let you say where people can find you. Oh, yeah, I spend way too much time on Instagram at advice, <laughs> advice I give my friends. It's just like a real, real time drain that app. But it is a lot of fun uh, to connect. And I share like parenting and health information. All kinds of health information, not just COVID stuff. So if you have other questions, Kelly is there for those sorts of things too. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to a day when I don't talk about COVID anymore yeah. ever. <laughs> I, I'm over it mentally as well. Um, but we're just not there yet. But yes, that and then I'm working on this book, um, which I've talked to you about at length. It's Advanced Parenting. It's uh, a book coming out in April of 2023, a long time away, but I have to write it now about how to help your child through a challenge for people who are facing, um, you know, medical diagnoses, mental health concerns, or, or developmental disabilities, and trying to sort that out as a parent. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that um, myself and um, can definitely relate. So anyway, um, thank you again for being here. And I will be seeing you on the gram. Okay. I think maybe we should see each other in person too. I feel yeah. like maybe a glass of wine after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> if it weren't noon on like a Tuesday, I would say let's get together right now. But um, I know we'll, we'll figure that out very soon. Bye, Kelly. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're looking for any of the resources from the episode, you can check them out in show notes. Again, if you liked listening, I'd love it for you to subscribe. Until next time, peace out.